don't know if you've heard of the competition that's going on at the moment, uh, where if you open, and no, by the way, we're not allowed to open the cream eggs before we give them out uh, through the doors this morning. I've checked, there are none. Um, <clears throat> if you get one of these cream eggs, which is half white and half dark chocolate, um, you could win up to £10,000. <clears> the challenge is you must not eat the egg. That's part of the marketing. Can you resist eating the egg? And uh, if you don't eat the egg, uh, you need to supply a picture of yourself with the uneaten egg and the number inside the wrapping, and you could win up to £10,000. I was reading an article this week. This is just it was between January and April, I think, uh, uh, are, the, are the kind of hidden eggs that are going through the shops. I was reading an article this week about a 21-year-old international student who opened the parcel, ate the egg, and a few days later heard about the competition. Gutting. <laughs> he said this, this, I'm convinced, is the lowest point in my life. You see, he ate the egg, he bought the egg, and he had a regular egg-eating experience. It was fine, but it could have been so much better. You see, that egg was so much more valuable than what he realized. And it feels like this message of Paul to the Colossians is a bit like that. He's saying to the people in Colossae and to us today through his inspired, through God's inspired word, do you realize how much more that you have? Do you realize actually what you have in Christ? This theme of Jesus is over everything. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created, the one in whom God's fullness dwells. Jesus, the one you saw, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the one in whom all things hold together. He's the final judge. He's the one over everything. And he lives in you if you're a child of God. Can you grasp that? He lives in you by his Holy Spirit. He's reminding them of the fullness of life that's available when your life is in Christ. And after all of that grounding in the first half of the book, then the second half of the book are the practical implications of that. And today we're looking at this the internal implications, how this affects our heart, the deepest part of our being, and if it does, how that will transform us so that it will impact our life at home, our life at home, at work, and our life beyond that. So let's open the passage now, <clears throat> and we're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, and if you can keep your Bibles open as, as we go through, that would be really helpful. So the next slide, please. And the first verse, thanks, Paul. The first verse in, in verse uh, 15 says this, Let the peace 
of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of the one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. This is written to all believers. Let the peace of Christ rule your lives to all believers. He's saying, let him rule your hearts. Don't hold back. His peace, you see, is much more than the absence of conflict. We live in a world full of conflict. His peace is shalom, completeness, well-being, being in a right relationship with God, wholeness, serenity, and it comes from this relationship with God. It's about fulfillment, about flourishing in life, about abundance. It's what we were singing about earlier, because when we see you, we find strength to face the day, regardless of the circumstances. You see, the solution to peace, as we've said before, is not found out there. It's found in here, regardless of the circumstances that our lives are in. Because without peace, the Bible teaches us that we live without even knowing it sometimes in bondage, in guilt, in separation, in dissatisfaction. And my experience of speaking to people who have recently come to faith is that they say something similar to these words, I have found peace. This is a reminder to all believers. Don't live with less. Let it happen. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. I may have told you this before, but years ago, I had the opportunity of uh, racing a dragster. And for those of you who don't know what a dragster is, it's really just a car with the most amazing sucker of an engine. That, that would blow your mind, the power that's in it. And sometimes with these big long vehicles and most of the length is the engine in there. <clears throat> now, it's a very dangerous piece of equipment. And so people like me were only allowed to race it on a reel. Uh, <laughs> it was a reel of 200 meters. And basically what happened, there were six of us in this row. And I had three controls, one was a gear, button which moved up to lower or high gear or low gear. One was an accelerator with my right foot and one was a brake with my left foot. And basically all I was told to do is when the light goes green, floor it and change the gear at the appropriate time and, you're, the, the, and if you don't brake at the end, it will brake for you. Uh, it was pretty idiot proof, hence the reason I was doing it. I remember they said, when, when we let control over to you, there'll be a, something will happen, and then you have to keep your left foot firmly on the brake. And I remember, you know, if you cross the line, you're disqualified. I remember it, the engine was just... That's all the power that it was, that it was exerting in, uh, in, in the potential that it could have had. But it's still, it was... It was pushing and I was holding my, my left foot on the brake as hard as I could 
and then we're watching, and the whites of my eyes were watching, <laughs> absolutely terrified as the lights were, were sitting on red, and when they went green, I remember letting off the, the, the brake, and without even touching the accelerator, whoosh, the thing set off, and then I, I pressed the accelerator, and I changed the gear, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was, I was totally out of control. Uh, the second race, I did much better, but here's the thing. I couldn't believe it, the difference when I lifted my foot off the brake. That's what Paul is like saying to the people of Colossae. Will you let the peace of Christ rule your hearts? Don't hold back. Lift that brake, those old habits, those things that are holding you back, and let his peace rule. Philippians chapter 4 says this, do not be anxious, how we need to hear that in this world, about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace, we need to hear this, and I'm talking to people who have committed their lives to Christ. This peace will happen more and more when we let go, and it's only available to you if you're a child of God. This fruit of the Spirit of peace. And the beauty of this is that this can be a barometer that will guard our hearts and lives, that when we lose this peace, it's a sign that we're moving off the path, that we've put our foot on some brake. Living outside God's will will rob us of that peace. And as his children, we can let this peace rule our lives. And so he goes on to the next verse in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let the message of Christ, this version says, dwell among you richly. And Paul talked a little bit about this last week as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom and psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. The word of Christ, logos, the, the dwelling, the, this oikio word, literally meaning being at home. Let the message of Christ be at home in you. The message translation, Eugene Peterson says it this way, let the word of Christ have the run of the house, give it plenty of room in your lives. Chew over this word of Christ digest it, let it become part of you, let it affect your thinking, let it dwell among you individually and corporately, challenge each other with it, let it impact your every day. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let it impact your every day. Let Christ's peace rule your hearts. Let his word 
fill your lives. And when our inner selves are more and more transformed, this will have a bearing on how we live in family, in work, and even in witness. And so that brings us on to the next verse, or the next section of verses, which are really about letting the values of Christ permeate your life. Paul talks about family life now, and he starts with marriage, and he uses these words, which to the 21st century ear, reading these words in isolation, can, can sound almost offensive. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. In fact, Paul presents a radically new view of marriage to the family in the surrounding culture. <laughs> One's already left the, the congregation. <laughs> Sorry, Libby. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Actually, Paul is elevating women, as we're going to see, and children to a previously unthinkable level of equality. You see, under Jewish law, Jews had a very low view of women. She had virtually no legal rights in marriage. The husband could actually divorce his wife for virtually any reason, not so with the wife. And this was a misinterpretation of uh, legal terminology. In fact, John uh, uh, Bar Barclay, William Barclay, I should say, I was reading uh, a bit about this in, in his, in his uh, commentary, and he said, would say, a Jewish man's morning prayer would often include, blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. The Greek world, a woman from a respectable class would rarely be seen or heard. They would be expected to run the home and family while the husband would find pleasure elsewhere. That's the sanitized version. The Roman world, marriage security for a woman was virtually meaningless. It was in ruins. One historian records the attitude, women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. And into this world, Jesus appears. And his attitude to women and marriage was revolutionary. He condemned the hard-hearted, male-orientated devaluation of the marriage bond. And he saw and treated women as equally valuable, as people of worth. And the emphasis of Paul writing in this context is not about control. It's actually about love. The parallel passage in Ephesians starts this way when talking about husbands and wives. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That would have been radical to the hearing community as they heard that. Husbands, love your wives, how? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The instructions you see in this verse that we read earlier that Paul made, do not be harsh, was sadly necessary in that time to that people. The biblical 
picture of marriage, you see, is radically different to the surrounding culture. And what about today? How does that biblical view stand up to scrutiny? According to Tim Keller, the common assumptions and perceptions of marriage today are as follows. These are some sort of, br- sort of crude summaries. Most marriages are unhappy. <clears throat> Living together first is the best way to discover the right person. Marriage is about someone who accepts me as I am, gets me to my goals and will not seek to change me. And by the way, will jump into bed regularly and be low maintenance. That's kind of the attitude and perception so often uh, without maybe being stated about marriage. Going both directions, by the way. But the empirical facts contradict these assumptions very often. Those who cohabit statistically are more likely to divorce. Of marriages that say they are unhappy, if they stay together after five years, two-thirds say they are happy. Statistically, married people typically enjoy better mental health and physical health than those who are not. Now, that is not a rule, and I'm not trying to suggest it will solve everything. I'm just saying that's what the statistics are saying. And I realize that there are many, many exceptions to this situation. But the principle of marriage is what we're talking about here. The biblical model of marriage is still revolutionary. It is that of a covenant. Simply put, a covenant is a combination of both love and law. It's both intimate and binding. I commit to be loving and faithful no matter how I feel. You see, when I cohabit with someone, someone once put it this way, I'm in marketing mode still. I've got to try and be on my best performance, otherwise they might leave me. As a husband, biblically, my role starts with covenantal love. It's about submission and equality, submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. It's built on love, loving my wife just as Christ loved the church. And any form of leadership is servant leadership. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Headship means setting a godly example for my family. When it comes to my wife, it involves sacrificial love, taking the example of Christ, and if necessary, being prepared to take the burden and responsibility. And please don't check in on Bethel as to how well I'm doing. In reality, it means partnership and sacrifice. And this beautiful institution between husband and wife is that the two have become one flesh. And in that context, the wife also submits to the husband as is fitting in the Lord. Each seeks to be loving, committed, faithful, regardless of how they feel. And my needs are always subordinate to those of my spouse. And in that relationship, I can, you see, be myself, knowing that my spouse is committed to me, male or female, whether I'm male or female, flaws and all. Where do you get the power to keep going when the worst is brought out in you? The inner peace 
of Christ ruling your heart. Where do the values come? The word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Not Googling the odd one-liner. Allowing it to influence everything we do. Next slide. We move on to children. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Again, it's sobering to notice in history. It's really interesting to look at the context that some of these words were written. The position of children in Roman society was pretty precarious for in the case of a, of, a, of, a, of a parent or a father in particular who was evil. Because they could choose to accept or reject the child when they were born, the father could. He could sell them as slaves if he wanted to, by law. He could make them work in chains if he wanted to. He could even inflict the death penalty on his own child. I find that really sobering. That was rare, but it was possible in law. And rightly, in this context, Paul, first of all, says, children, obey your parents in the right context. But verse 21, he says quite radically, fathers, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Perhaps Paul himself was speaking out of personal experience. I don't know. But here's the thing where Christ's love is communicated through parents' love. Children will be encouraged and children will thrive. And in a context of love with appropriate boundaries and consistency, children do learn obedience. Where does that authentic consistency come from? The word of Christ dwelling richly. And so from family to workplace, and another quite challenging, controversially sounding verse in verse 22, Slaves, obey your masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. There were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Practically all work was carried out by them. And they came into slavery in a variety of methods. Not all masters were evil. Every occupation, including doctors and teachers, were carried out by so-called slaves. Often there were bonds of the deepest loyalty between master and slave. But all too often, the life of a slave was grim. In Roman law, they were regarded as virtually nothing and torturing them was commonplace. And in this context, in this empire, with this custom and practice, Paul declared in this same chapter, verse 11, in Christ there is neither slave nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. That would have been radical in the ears of the Roman Empire. You see, it was actually the Christian faith that drove out slavery. They abolished slavery through people like Wilberforce and the abolitionist movement. The principles of scripture written in this chapter and in other chapters couldn't stand up to the understanding of what slavery might mean. The principles of love, respect, and justice are consistently taught throughout. 
And in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says to those in authority, provide what is right and fair. And hear this, the principle of this text is this, no matter what your job is, no matter what your job is, you are not a slave. You are not working for men, you see, you're working for the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. This principle, you see, delivers you and me from people pleasing. That sort of sense where I need to make sure that the boss sees me when I'm working. I need to see that the boss knows that, that what I've done is the right thing. Because we have an audience of one, he's saying. The one who matters sees what you're doing. The one who matters most sees what you're doing, I should say. My work is significant because of my relationship with Jesus. Many of you, probably most of you have seen that film, Chariots of Fire, which tells the story of the Olympic runner, Eric Liddell. He became famous, if you remember, because he refused to run the 100 meters on a, because it was on a Sunday in the Olympic Games. He didn't know it was going to be. And so he switched events to the 400. And uh, <clears throat> that was the dramatic thing. He actually won the 400 meters, which was remarkable in itself. But the story of Eric Liddell is much more than that particular Olympic event. See, his sister, Jenny, uh, he came from a very... Uh, devout Christian family, his sister Jenny would say to him that he shouldn't be running in the Olympics, that he should be going off to be a missionary in China because he felt called to do that. And he ended up going off as a missionary after the Olympic Games. He believed it was God's will for him to go, but not before the Olympics. And he said in the film anyway, in this famous line, I believe, Jenny, God has made me for a purpose but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. You are not a slave. What happens to us internally? Next slide inevitably will impact our outer self, our family, our work, and our witness. This is only possible, I believe, passionately, if Jesus is over everything in our lives. It's only then that we will find peace. And without him, we have no promise of peace. I have a friend who is the loveliest guy. And he was sharing with me, you wouldn't know him recently, how he is living, I think he used the word, in a prison of anxiety. And I want him to have peace as his friend. But in all honesty, I can't promise him that without Jesus. I absolutely believe what I'm saying to you. You see, he invites him and you, if you don't know him, to come as you are. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. 
that he reaches out and invites us in this place where we are, not sanitized and cleaned up, but where we are, to come to him as we are. And he says, let my peace rule your life. That's where you'll find life in all its fullness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. And thank you that when you reign over everything in our lives, we can know this peace, this serenity, this wholeness, this acceptance, this freedom, because you made us for relationship and relationship with you. Speak to each of us today, Father, whether it is that we need to invite you for the first time or invite you more and more as we lift that left foot off our brake and let go to let you take reign in our lives, that you might reign over everything. 